You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. New details on House Republicans' plan to raise the debt ceiling and enact cuts to spending. Bloomberg reporting that leaders are planning a vote next week on both. Congressman Kevin Hearn telling Bloomberg the debt ceiling increase would be about $2 trillion dollars. And as we told you, would lift the limit to May of 2024, smack dab in the throes of a presidential election cycle. Speaker McCarthy laid out the broad contours of the debt limit bill to the rank and file this morning, along with plans to cut discretionary spending by $130 billion, roughly. He touched on a lot of these top lines in his speech yesterday at the NYSE. Our legislation accomplishes the same goal by returning the federal government to 2022 levels. And then limit the growth of spending over the next 10 years to 1% of annual growth. Now, don't believe anyone who tells you these are draconian limits. Think about it. They're the same spending levels we had just four months ago. Just last October. Well, that's seven months. Seven months, but who's counting? And, of course, he's calling on Joe Biden to sit down and talk. Hasn't had a meeting, he says, since the 1st of February. Remember that? We talked about it here on Sound On. And, of course, Joe Biden, well, you know, his refrain, he repeated it yesterday. Of course I'll speak on Show me his budget. That old expression, show me your budget. You know, he, we agreed early on. I'd lay down a budget, which I did on March 9th, and he'd lay down a budget. I don't know what we're negotiating, but I don't know what they want. Back in town yesterday, back on the Senate floor, the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, doesn't see it the same way. President Biden does not get to stick his fingers in his ears and refuse to listen, talk, or negotiate. And the American, the American people know that. The White House needs to stop wasting time and start negotiating with the Speaker of the House. You know who's been through this process a couple of times is Douglas Holseekin, and I'm glad to say he's with us now, the president of the American Action Forum Policy Institute, which in fact has some new polling on all of this, the conservative think tank, former director as well of the Congressional Budget Office. So, Douglas, I'm sure this is interesting for you to watch. Last time we talked about it, we were in nowhere land. We're starting to fill in some of the blanks here, and we do expect a more complete plan from House Republicans uh, later on today. Just for starters here, how important is it for Kevin McCarthy to have 218 votes to be able to pass this budget so the White House will engage him? 
Well, I think it's crucial that he be able to pass legislation out of the House with uh, 218 votes, and they'll all be Republican votes. He's not going to get any Democratic support. So, uh, but it doesn't have to be a complete budget. It has to mm-hmm. be a debt ceiling increase, and then whatever specifics they want that increase to carry. And you know, he laid those out in the clip that you played. Um, some uh, slower growth in discretionary spending. He also talked about some energy uh, provisions, some regulatory controls, the RAINS Act, things like that. Yep. So they have to coalesce, and they have to lay down a marker that says this is what we want and this is what we can pass. And if they do that, um, you know, it goes over to the Senate. At that point, it's impossible for the White House not to engage and give the majority leader in the Senate some guidance about how how they should modify the legislation. And and then there's really going to be a, a serious negotiation. Until then, we've just seen them staring at each other from their, from their respective corners. There's been no real progress. Yeah, right. And of course, at that point, there could be and hopefully will be a deal, Douglas, but that's exactly right. what this new majority said and this new speaker said they wouldn't do, right? This was going to be the return to regular order, and I guess we'll try again next year. Well, we certainly are not seeing the the House pass a budget resolution, the Senate pass a budget resolution. The House still says it's going to. The Senate Budget Committee has no intention to do it. They're, they're holding hearings on climate change. So uh, we're, we're a long way from regular order. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> Still a long way. Uh, the American Action Network uh, did some uh, research on this. And interesting, uh, the methodology, you can tell me more about it, but you surveyed Americans in 87 battleground congressional districts where Joe Biden won by an average of five points in 2020 to get a sense of where public sentiment is on all of this. And as is as, as pointed out here uh there's overwhelming majority support among battleground voters for proposed savings here in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. Uh, it sounds to me in, in that case, Douglas, that these two will be tied regardless of the president's wishes. Well, well first, a disclaimer. This isn't actually my polling. It's our sister organization. But um, I've seen it, and it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Take it at face value. Uh, all of the things that the speaker talked about yesterday are things the American public wants. Uh, they want some better spending controls. They want the debt limit to go up. And they want there to be serious negotiations to get the debt limit up. And uh, the polling says that if it fails to happen, they will blame the president. Um, I, I think that was real news and uh, certainly something the White House ought to think hard about. Well, indeed. I mean, we can pick through some of this stuff here, but this is exactly what Kevin McCarthy was hoping for, I suspect, and what the president was concerned about, despite the history of raising the debt ceiling under the Trump administration and in a clean bill. It's looking like that's not possible here based on the politics of the day, Douglas. Do you agree? I, I would agree with that. And and people have said this, you know, people who are informed, but not necessarily the Speaker of the House, have been saying for months, look, a clean debt limit increase is just not in the cards. And hmm. it's also not unusual to have uh, some sort of fiscal controls attached to a debt limit increase. Uh, that's a very common occurrence in the United States. So to somehow suggest that this is out, outside of the norm, I think, is really misleading. Yeah. Uh, so talk to me about the cuts that are proposed here. $130 billion. This has been floating around for a while. Bring it back to spending levels from last year, essentially from 2022. And Kevin McCarthy has actually been fairly compelling. I mean, if you think back seven months, uh, do you do you think that you cannot actually live under those spending levels is the question. <laughs> How difficult, though, will it be to exact those cuts in negotiations? I think it'll be very difficult. Uh, the Democrats have no interest. That's the White House and the Senate. And you know, any bill to raise the debt limit has to pass the Senate and be signed by the president. So yeah. 
this is not going to be the starting position, that's for sure. Uh, and I'll just point out for, for the listeners that this is discretionary spending. This is the annual appropriations that Congress does. Mm-hmm. That's about a third of the budget at this point. Seventy percent right. of it is is the big because everything else is off the table. Those are off limits. Yeah, they're all off limits. So if if uh, wildly successful, uh, Speaker McCarthy will put a tiny, tiny dent in the fiscal problem, and we'll be back to have this conversation again. You say Democrats, but. You could say there are a number of Republicans in the caucus who would be uh, tough to convince on this one as well, Douglas. Speaker McCarthy doesn't exactly have control of his entire membership here, and everybody's got a vested interest. When you start talking about programs on an individual level, that's when the opinions start to change. Absolutely. These kinds of uh, proposals are great in the abstract and difficult to pass in the specifics. And they'll be harder for Republicans this year than in many years because one of the little-noticed features of the Republican takeover of the House is they won seats in New York State, California, big blue states that no one expected them to win. Mm-hmm. Those are very much endangered um, uh, uh, congressmen and congresswomen at this point because you know they're going to have a tough reelect to begin with, and if they have to sign off on something that looks draconian to their district, it's going to be a tough vote. And if these cuts are not as deep as many uh, Republicans wanted, particularly those who challenged Speaker McCarthy's uh, gavel when, when uh, at the beginning of this session. You know, look, they were talking a couple of months ago, Douglas, about a motion to vacate, that this actually could be the end of Speaker McCarthy's career if he takes a wrong step here. Do you, do you feel that way still or no? Absolutely. Um, you know, that one of the things they demanded was that you could have one person make a motion to vacate the chair uh, and that, that, so that, that threat is looming over the speaker every day. And it certainly has to influence what votes he chooses to take to the floor, and it will influence uh, how he takes this vote. So, you know, if they do things to modify the, the sort of moderate Republicans' concerns, they may very well lose votes at the other end of the spectrum, and he may very well endanger his job. So it's a tightrope yeah. that he has to walk here. Well, it sure is. There was some... Uh Research today, a note out from Goldman Sachs, uh, pointing to what could be an earlier than expected X date. And we could be middle uh, or back half of June versus July or August based on uh, the numbers that they're looking at. And we, we have to wait for tax returns, of course, to come in and have a real sense of where we are. But if tax returns are running uh, below expectations, Douglas, and that is the case, this window is going to be closing very quickly. They really have a matter of weeks to figure this out, right? Yeah, they, they essentially have no time. Uh, e- even if we get a real strong tax yield, uh, we'll find out starting tomorrow since today's the, the last day. Um, you know, that buys you some time. You get a strong one in June 15th, that buys you some time. It buys you till August. I mean, you've seen the Congress in action for years. Now to August, they're not going to get a lot done. It takes right. forever to get things done. So they, they need to start negotiating right now. So what's realistic, though? I mean, You've been through this from the perspective of the Congressional Budget Office, and they don't like waiting around and, and, and having things show up late here. Uh, knowing that that's the case, and we have a recess where they've got a couple of weeks coming up here, they'll be back in town for a while, and they're gone in August. When does this really need to be finished? Uh, I, I think the plan for the House to vote next week on something that was sketched out to the Republican caucus this morning uh, gets the timetable about right. Assuming that passes, and that's a big assumption, as we just discussed, but assuming that they can get something that everyone can coalesce around, get mm-hmm. 218, then the marker's been laid down, and 
there's only really one deal then to be struck. What can the Senate pass that the president will sign? And, you know, they need to sit down and figure that out. Those are old hands at this. That's uh, mm-hmm. President Biden, Majority Leader Schumer, Minority Leader McConnell. They've all been through this this movie many times. They need to figure out what, what the deal is. And then comes the interesting part. They'll pass it. They'll go back to the House. And with the president sitting there waiting to sign, the pressure for, for that to pass the House will be enormous. It probably will. And it'll probably take some Democratic votes to get it done. That's right. And so when so, you look at the May so, 2024 date, Douglas... Does that need to move? Are we really seriously going to do this again in the middle of a presidential election? Um, one would hope not. Um, where where this is brinksmanship, running up to the X date, yeah. using extraordinary measures, all of that. Um, <laughs> a better outcome would be for them to get a bit serious about some of the genuine long-term fiscal problems that the, the budget has. Make some improvements. No one has to solve it in one fell swoop. And in that legislation, also extend the debt limit one more time and get it past the election. That, that seems to me a sensible way to go about this. From a voice of experience, Douglas Holtz-Eakin, president of the American Action Forum Policy Institute. Douglas, thank you. It's time to assemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Rick, you spent uh, a number of years working with uh, Douglas, and I wonder if you share his view on all of this. Uh, May 2024, for starters... Sounds like an item that's dead on arrival. Do you see it that way? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, there's so much that's got to get done uh, in a very short period of time. As 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 Doug was saying, um, you know, there's there's really no time like the president to get this done. But the the other thing that he, he didn't mention is there are only 40 days left between now and Labor Day hmm. of of congressional action. Right? Those are the days they're working. 40 days until September 1st. And so if they intend to actually get something passed, just to be able to meet the requirements of legislation, um, they almost have to have this bill reported out today. Um, (laughs) And that's why I think you see the urgency uh, that's occurring, because nobody wants to work weekends in the House Mm -hmm. uh, and they want their their month off in August uh, and, and, and they don't want to be criticized. Um, for not getting this done before they start taking all this vacation time. So uh, that that's probably the most important impetus to get something done is that these members don't want to be in Washington. And and by the way, we don't want them in Washington. They only do damage when they're here. <laughs> well, and so true. the sooner they get this done, the sooner they can get out and enjoy their their summer and 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 and, and put the country back on a, a good and strong economic footing. So I think what we're seeing now is a realization by leadership that they have no time to spare. Jeannie, I want my month off in August also, but I don't think that's going to happen. What do you make of the uh, this research uh, from the American Action Network that I mentioned, Jeannie? Voters opposing increasing the debt ceiling without cutting government spending come in at 37%, uh, at 50%, rather, those who support 37 There seems to be full-throated, if you believe this research, support for getting both of these done at once. Yeah, well, as usual with research, you have to really look. I've seen mm-hmm. some of the questions and some of them I would quibble with. I do think that they lead respondents in a certain direction. But again, you'd have to see the raw data on this. And all we're seeing are the top lines from a conservative um, um, conservative action network. But the reality of this is when you ask voters, should we be responsible with the economy? 
Absolutely. What do you want to cut? They have very different views on that, and none of that is reflected in this poll. Well, that is, you put your finger on it. You can talk about broad strokes here, but every one of those Republican lawmakers in the House will have a different priority when they sit down to vote. As soon as next week, that appears to be the case. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The New York Times calls it a grudge match. Donald Trump calls it a political stunt. Talking about Ron DeSantis's engagement in the most recent throws here with Walt Disney Corporation. It's getting to be a little bit difficult to follow, but as I read in the Times, in what has taken on the trappings of a grudge match, Governor DeSantis punched Disney anew, announcing new legislation that would override the company's recent effort to sidestep state oversight of its theme parks. You remember all this stuff? DeSantis outmaneuvered by Disney, now up with new legislation and a couple of ideas to consider. Now people are like, well, there's, what should we do with this land? And so, you know, it's like, okay, kids, I mean, people have said, you know, maybe maybe have a, another, uh, maybe create a state park, okay. maybe try to do park. more amusement, uh, amusement. parks. Uh, someone even said, like, maybe you need another state prison. A Who prison, knows? I mean, I just think it. that the, the possibilities are, 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 are endless, and so that is now going to be analyzed to see what would make, make the most sense. All this goes back to Disney taking a stand, if you remember all of this on the don't say gay bill they've been sparring for more than a year over this tax district that encompasses Disney World 25,000 acres south of Orlando employs 75,000 people and attracts 50 million visitors a year that district goes back to 1967 and Bob Iger who's back in charge the chief executive 
has characterized Ron DeSantis as anti-business and anti-Florida. And that's now what we're hearing as well from Donald Trump, who truths DeSantis is being absolutely destroyed by Disney. His original PR plan fizzled, so now he's going back with a new one in order to save face. He goes on to write that Disney could announce a slow withdrawal or sale of certain properties. would be a killer, he says. It's a political stunt. Ron should work on the squatter mess. We reassembled our panel with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Jeannie, this is uh, just a story that's apparently not going away. But as we see a Republican going head to head with a private corporation like this, it does make one wonder uh, if, if that is consistent with conservative values, because I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be in, in most worlds. What do you think? Yeah, and that's what we heard uh, former Governor Christie saying, you know, Ron DeSantis sure is not a conservative based on what he's doing with Disney. And I think that that's, a, you know, echoes what a lot of people feel. You know, he's he made the case that, you know, how can Disney sneak up on you? Can we have faith in a president, potential president who who Bob Iger, uh, you know, uh, uh, is able to get around? What do you do when you're sitting across from Xi or Putin? This is not a good look for for Ron DeSantis. And, you know, I, I applaud you reading the truth social joe matthew as Thank always you. and you know up with you. i so, you're keeping up i seldom agree with donald trump but this is a political stunt it's unnecessary it has gone awry and it is hurting ron DeSantis at the moment you know there's a lot of time to go but this is not what he was you know the look he wants to have before mm-hmm. he goes out and announces he's going to run so all around the mouth has really won the day here over ron DeSantis so far <laughs> rick i don't I don't suppose the prison idea was real. He was kind of blue sky in there, getting a laugh, getting a sound cut, and God knows we grabbed it. Uh, but there's a lot more where this came from. In fact, real stuff. Two weeks ago, we floated the idea of hiking taxes on Disney hotels, imposing tolls on roads that lead to its theme parks. He's asked for an investigation by Florida's chief inspector general into Disney's efforts uh, to circumvent his authority. And uh, Jimmy Petronas, who who works for Ron DeSantis, uh and does finances for the state was on Fox this morning uh, saying that Ron DeSantis is owning Disney right now. Listen, if I'm Bob Iger, I am working around the clock to try to figure out how to make amends with Ron DeSantis, just like Bud Light should be working around the clock to go kiss Kid Rock's ass. This is a problem needs to be addressed. It is wide open. We can get to the Bud Light thing in a minute here, Rick, but but this is. Uh, runs against any sort of conservative thought, any conservative theory to go up against a private enterprise, doesn't it? Well, look, I mean, if a private enterprise is not paying its fair share in taxes, is not serving the community in a, in a way that is considered, you know, healthy, then sure, you go after them. I, I, I sincerely doubt that that's the Disney problem, right? Mm-hmm. And And so, it is conservative to to keep reins on business and ensure that there's a public interest involved in what they're doing. But um, I think this goes in a much different direction. It's not about conservatism. It's this new strain of, uh, you know, anti-wokeism that doesn't really have a fitting inside a conservative movement in general. Right. It, you know, it encompasses so many different cultural issues of our time. It's it's kind of wedge politics on steroids. And in this case, um, as is the case between both Disney and and as you mentioned, Bud Light, 
Uh, it's the application of this anti-woke strategy that puts Republicans against the corporate community. And and the, the one thing I keep hearing over and over from my friends in politics and on Capitol Hill right now is if this is what he's going to do to Disney as governor, what in the world should we expect if this guy is actually the president of the United States mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and using all the power that the country has uh, against uh, uh, issues related to climate or culture or, you know, gender. Uh, I mean, like there's a there's a whole different set of issues that he's putting that the governor DeSantis is putting on the table politically that heretofore haven't been in the forefront of national politics. Well, the Bud Light thing is curious to me. Uh, by the way, the, Jimmy Patron is the chief financial officer of Florida making that reference uh, here, Jeannie, it's, it, it does seem to be a bit of a trend here. And Ron DeSantis actually weighed in on this uh, on another program. He was asked about the Bud Light uh, boycott. If you haven't heard about this, you've been living under a rock. There's a there's a trans influencer, if I can call it that, uh, who Bud Light made a special care package for and put her picture on a Bud Light can. That's when Kid Rock and others started blowing up Bud Light cans on social media, literally shooting at cans. And Ron DeSantis calls the whole effort righteous. That's like them rubbing our faces in it. And it's like these companies that do this, if they never have any response, they're just going to keep doing it. So if you as a consumer are like, yeah, they're basically, and, and, and I mean, it's such a fraud with, with what they're doing with that. Like, yeah, they're doing that, but I'm just going to keep drinking it anyways. Well, then they're just going to keep doing it. So I think we have power as consumers to make our voice heard Somebody and not on every company because sometimes conservative uh, consumers aren't going to make a dent in some companies. This one is one, if you don't have conservative beer drinkers, you're going to feel that. And yeah. so, you know, I think it's a righteous, um, I think it's a righteous thing. Again, in this case, Rick, anti-conservative in, or, or is he simply trying to out-Trump Trump? Yeah, I think there's a lot of out-Trumping Trump here. I mean, find the ideological wisdom in this and you can't. Uh, there's, there's, this is not an ideological issue. This is this is someone who doesn't like advertising, you know, mm-hmm. and so if you don't like advertising in the company, you have every option to do whatever you want. It's nothing has changed in 200 years uh, when it comes to uh, consumers choosing uh, their beverage of choice in this case. And and but the idea that somehow this is going to become uh, overnight a a conservative firebrand. I mean, you know, the internet gives rise to these things when you start blowing up beer cans. Won't be the first time I've seen a beer can blowing up on the internet. Um, as much as that's entertaining, it's a bad use of beer. I'd rather consume it than blow it up. Uh, but but the company knows that, and and they react the way they want to, and mm-hmm. and and that's how markets work. That comment was on the Benny show, uh, by the way, Jeannie, and he said that uh, he won't drink Bud Light anymore himself. That is, he and his wife prefer Guinness. How's that going to go over with Middle America? Well, you know. That is his prerogative. That's his wife's prerogative. As consumers, we all can choose to follow brands and and enjoy the beer or whatever it is. But the reality is 
Here is the governor of one of the largest states in the country using the power of the state against one of the taxpaying companies in his state yeah. because they weren't supportive of a bill that came that was passed in his state. And when this company and his CEO was able to outsmart him, he gets upset and says he's going to, you know, set up a jail near where where they're located. I mean, it is absurd. And I'm not sure what he is doing, because the reality is this is not the issue that is going to win you the general election for the presidency in the United States. People don't care this much about these issues. They care about the economy, care about climate, care about crime. He should focus on those. And I have to say again, Donald Trump is Trump is right. Housing as well. Deal with the big issues that matter. I'm not sure where he is going with this. He's trying to win a Republican primary, but his winning strategy was that he's electable in a general election. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, he's no more electable in a general right now than Donald Trump, maybe less so. So I think he's really hurting himself at this point. Well, it's not going away, at least this standoff, anytime soon, as we read on the terminal. Shortly after Ron DeSantis threatened to build the prison next door to Disney, Disney publicized what will be Disneyland's first official LGBTQ event for Pride Month. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You know, we spent so much time on the debt ceiling lately, the budget process as well. It's hard to remember what else Congress is working on. Well, that's where Bloomberg government's Zach Cohen's reporting comes in handy here. As he writes, lawmakers trying to make progress on legislation addressing freight rail accidents, transgender athletes, firefighter assistance, and war powers authorization, all in a quickly closing window of time. Zach joins us before we bring the panel in on some of these. Zach, can any of these get done before Congress breaks in late June? Yeah, uh, certainly the House Republicans are going to be advancing this uh this bill regarding transgender athletes, it doesn't face any chance of passing in the Democratic Health Senate. Hmm. Um, and there'll be some other partisan bills as well. But on bipartisan issues, there's definitely uh, some issues. I was talking with uh, Senator J.D. Vance, the Republican from Ohio, earlier today. And he thinks as many as uh, 15 Republicans are going to sign on to this new legislation that would uh, impose new regulations on freight rail uh, after the crash at East Palestine and other places uh, in Ohio. Uh, that, that caused this toxic chemical fumes uh, to be released. And so we could definitely see that work its way through Congress. I think the, the Commerce Committee is expected to mark it up in the next couple of weeks here. And so there are definitely some things that Congress would like to get done over these next couple of months, especially before uh, the debt ceiling uh, fight sort of reaches yeah, a right. fever pitch here. Uh, House Republicans are saying that they're going to vote next week on their sort of initial ask to the Biden administration on what a debt ceiling hike could look like paired with certain spending cuts. Um, and as we reach the, the X date, so to speak, mm -hmm. sometime this summer when the U.S. government's not going to be able to uh, pay its debts, um, that's going to sort of increase the temperature here. We talked uh, quite a bit a few weeks ago about the authorization for the use of military force in Iraq. The Senate managed to knock that down, as was the hope of Senator Chuck Schumer. Will the House do the same? They might. Uh, there's definitely some bipartisan interest there as well. It passed pretty handily over here in the Senate, um, and the House could do so as well. I believe House Foreign Affairs Chairman Michael McCall has expressed interest in it, obviously would be relevant to this conversation, but yeah. I think has also talked about 
including uh, some uh, measures that would change the 2001 authorization of military force, basically that underpins the, the quote-unquote war on terror. Yeah, right. And that's obviously a much more complicated debate. And so if they try to add that to something that very narrowly tackles the Iraq wars, mm-hmm. uh, that could pose trouble, especially in the Senate. But if they pass a very uh, narrow bill that tackles the Iraq wars, then certainly it could make its way to Biden's desk for his expected signature. So the idea here uh, is get everything you can done before you have to address the debt ceiling, because after that, the store is closed. Is that right, Zach? I mean, it's just going to get harder and harder, uh, especially once, you know, tempers flare and, and lawmakers only have a certain amount of bandwidth to think about issues other than what's immediately before them. And then after the debt limit is, is handled, um, at least hopefully, if the, you know, for the economy's sake, they're going to have to pivot to really other important issues, things like general appropriations bills. Government funding runs out September 30th, the annual government uh, funding bills. The NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, that sets military policy for the next year, that has to pass by the end of the year. There's a farm bill that they want to pass, you know, billions of dollars in, in um, food stamps and, and agriculture subsidies that they need to get done uh, for the next five years, and that expires sometime this fall. And so there's a number of these bigger packages that they'll need to turn to. And then, sure enough, it's 2024, and lawmakers will be more interested in <laughs> campaigning back at home rather than sitting here in Washington. What a perfect snapshot. Zach, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Zach Cohen, Bloomberg Government, Find the Story. Congress faces long post-recess to-do list led by debt limit on the terminal. Uh, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are here. Uh, and I wonder, Rick, if this sounds realistic to you at all. And even if all of this did get done before the debt limit is is that all for the session this time around yeah look it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a non-productive session you look at what's not happened in the senate so far uh, a combination of a very slow start and then people like uh, mitch mcconnell and diane feinstein uh you know being uh out uh for medical reasons uh is frozen them up now they can make progress while the house contemplates the debt limit uh, they're not really in that game, as uh, as Mitch McConnell declared uh, yesterday very ferociously that that's the problem for the speaker and the Biden administration. So um, they'll come in late uh, and probably be the broker on a deal. But um, but there's a lot they can do. And I think the point that uh, was made about J.D. Vance and 15 other Republicans coming together to regulate railing street, it shows you that the spirit of bipartisanship still exists in the United States Senate. They passed a lot of legislation last year in a bipartisan fashion, and uh, it sounds like they're on the right track to continue to do that this year. Uh, how that then uh, works its way through this, the House is anybody's guess. Uh, that's a minefield. But, uh, yeah, I think there'll be some progress on some important issues you know, between now and Labor Day. Rick mentions uh, DiFi as We've been referring to it inside the Beltway here. Diane Feinstein, Jeannie, this is a pretty big deal as Joe Biden has a backlog of judicial nominees uh, that he wants to see action on, wants to see confirmations in the Senate, but her uh, not being available. And now apparently an effort to replace her on the Judiciary Committee getting zero Republican support means that that may be all Joe Biden gets. How do you see it? It's is very tough for Democrats. They, of course, want to be respectful to Senator Feinstein. She is, you know, something of a legend in the Senate. 
Um, there have been, you know, cries from people like Nancy Pelosi that there's a bit of sexism at play here because men have been out sick and there hasn't been talk of replacing them. But the political reality, and we heard this from Senator Klobuchar over the weekend, is she can stay out if they can try to replace her on the Judiciary Committee, which probably is a non-starter at this point. Yeah. But if we get to the debt ceiling, they're going to need her back. So they really may have to, you know, take some action on this. It's a very tough thing. This is where you hope her family would be able to step in. Um, but very, very tough because, of course, she is a legend in this town. You know, I would just say on things that they can do, let's look at Ukraine, um, Ukraine funding, um, the farm bill, which was mentioned, banning TikTok, maybe crypto, and some people say maybe even something in permitting. So there are some areas where we may see some bipartisan support and ability to work together. Anything confronting China is probably one area, like like I said, TikTok, mm -hmm. but other areas where we may see them able to come together. But it's going to be a very slow, slow session. Um, you know, if we get a debt ceiling relief, that would be a great boon to the country. Yeah. And we can't ask for much more at this point. Rick, we only have a minute, but the, the issue with Senator Feinstein is a delicate one. Uh, obviously, she's out with shingles, by the way. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna of California, Democrat, called for her resignation. And there are a few who have, who have said as much. You know what it's like to deal with health issues in the United States Senate. What's the right thing to do? You know, look, the Democrat uh, leadership is going to have to make a call on this. Uh, you want to be respectful. Uh, the, the idea of the Senate is collegiality. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, she just happens to sit on a, a very important committee that she used to chair. Uh, that 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 just needs action on a regular basis. I mean, you know, they they're judges to get through, and there's no substitute for having somebody in that chair. So I think they're in a bind, and I think they're just not going to be able to get much done on it. Yeah, seems to be the case. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, our signature panel. Thanks to you both on this tax day. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington along with Kaylee Lines. We have found her straight <laughs> off, well, I, I guess I'd say the hill, but of course I should say TV with the crypto show today. What a day for you to be talking crypto as Gary Gensler. Yeah just runs into the buzzsaw in the U.S. House. Uh, we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on, but we start with this Dominion Fox News case. You read all the texts mm-hmm. when they came out, right? Oh, yeah. How could you not? Dana Perino uh, describing the theory that uh, Donald Trump won the election in 2020. Total BS. These are quotes. Insane and nonsense. Sean Hannity sent a text message at the time uh, saying the architect of this whole conspiracy theory, Sidney Powell, was a, I'll be careful here, a lunatic. Mm -hmm. Later testified he did not believe it for one second. These are what makes this case different than most defamation trials, where the bar is very hard, uh, very high, I should say, to prove this thing. They've got actual proof here in emails and texts that really change the contours of this case. Yeah, but I guess it's a question of the burden of proof on malicious intent. Mm -hmm. That really ultimately is what Dominion has to prove here, because even the judge in this trial has already said, you know, there was that this did happen. It's not in dispute that Fox was out there uh, spewing Mm -hmm. information that it knew uh, wasn't necessarily true. It's about the intent of it. Did they recklessly disregard the truth as dominion alleges or as fox says they weren't defaming anyone and this is assault on press freedom it i guess it it's a very high bar still to clear and this in theory could have broader implications for the media landscape that's where we begin with amy guida professor of law at tulane university law school expert in defamation law and author of the book seek and hide the tangled history of the right to privacy Amy, we've got a lot of questions for you, but in this case, is the bar actually set a bit lower by this unique breadth of evidence? So so that's a really wonderful question, Joe. And and part of what, what's really interesting about the case is that very early on, uh, the, the court basically decided that uh, none of the statements, it was crystal clear that none of the statements relating to the plaintiff about the election were true. And so, therefore, that's taken off the table to some extent. Really, now, the focus is whether or not the defendants in the case then uh, acted with actual malice when they said what they said. So, in other words, um, as Kaylee suggested, uh, did they speak with knowing falsity or with reckless disregard as to falsity. Hmm. And generally, that's a really high bar to um, to, to match. Uh, and, uh, and so the question here is gonna be what evidence then will prove that, uh, that the people had uh, knowing falsity, either said the information knowing it was false, or acted with reckless disregard with regard to the information. In other words, relied on some uh, bad sources or or otherwise. That's really what this trial is all about. But Joe was just talking about the text. I mean, given the evidence that we already know about, Amy, how do you realistically think Dominion's case is at proving that, that there was malice there? 
Well, one of the one of the intriguing things is that if a case is easy enough, generally it doesn't even go to trial. So we would have seen a settlement already. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. That's my sense. Um, And uh, and certainly here, when the judge had a look at it, the judge had the ability to uh, to uh, decide the issue on summary judgment, perhaps, and the and the judge decided not to do that. So there's there's stuff there that could lead a reasonable juror, it seems, to decide that you know maybe there isn't knowing falsity or with reckless disregard as to falsity, or maybe it's just that the, the judge thought you know this is such an important case with regard to speech. Uh, I want to give it to the jury to decide to make it uh, make it clean. Amy, what does it tell you that this jury was seated so quickly? Some predicted that this would be an uh, an extended and very messy affair, trying to get people to say whether they're Fox viewers or consider themselves MAGA or liberals. They've got 12 and 12. We're ready to go. Yeah, as I understand it, the the Delaware courts can do that sometimes. In other words, many times the question is, you know, do you watch Fox News? Well, can you be unbiased in hearing the evidence? If the answer is that, yes, they watch Fox News, but they can be unbiased and they're believed, then uh, then the court will will seat that person. So there's a lot that happens behind the scenes uh, as well with regard to, to jury selection. Well, and ultimately what this jury decides, Amy, could have major implications, not just for Fox or for Dominion, but as Fox is trying to make the case that this is an assault on press freedom, it does really raise questions about what the press can and cannot do in America. How is this outcome likely to affect other journalists, other networks? And I understand that. Joe and I are journalists on a radio network at the moment, so there are implications are for us for, as well. <laughs> sure, that's right. I mean, what what likely will happen is that uh, the losing side will file an appeal, uh, or the the trial court will uh, will make some sort of decision of law, uh, and that decision will be published. It goes up on appeal. That decision will then be published. At that point, then there will be precedent for other courts to follow. What I think is interesting in this case is that it does suggest that uh, New York Times versus Sullivan protections for journalists are eroding to some extent. Uh, And it wasn't that journalists always won these sorts of cases. Certainly some actual malice cases uh, were heard previously. But, but what's intriguing to me is that uh, it, it, many of the, many times these used to be slam dunks for um, for journalists. If hmm. actual malice was such a very high bar, uh, and and now of course, if uh, the jury decides that um, that Fox is liable, and if that is then upheld on appeal, that will tell other courts how or tell other plaintiffs. Uh, how to prove uh, actual malice to the satisfaction of uh, an appellate court um, in that jurisdiction and perhaps throughout the United States. So uh, so anytime a, a court says, yeah, this evidence proves actual malice, this is enough to suggest that actual malice existed in that case. When a court says that, then plaintiff's attorneys and certainly media defense attorneys um, uh, sit up, take notice um, and and better understand then how we define those those strange terms like reckless disregard mm-hmm. um, and and such. 
obviously Professor Dominion is in this to win it, or we might not have gotten this far. But I wonder if you see sort of moral victory in just getting the the big names, the big personalities from Fox uh, to get them on the stand, to get that out in the public, to see Tucker Carlson questioned about this with his texts, you know, up on a screen. Is, Is that a win in itself for Dominion? Yeah, and I think I think it's intriguing too to think about uh, the way that can inform the general public about defamation, uh, and this idea that if the information is false and you know it's false, or you're acted you've acted with disregard as to the falsity, that in fact that sort of speech is not necessarily going to be protected, uh, despite the fact that we have the First Amendment. So I do think that it's it's intriguing on the level that you suggest, but also this idea that maybe the public itself will better uh, understand defamation and misinformation and the possibility of liability. I mean, it's deeply troubling because publishers now will also better understand that and might be chilled by that idea. Uh, but but um, but but public interest in this, I think, is is uh, perhaps uh, going to be deeply educational. Mm. Well, I'm glad you brought up the misinformation point, Amy, because in part of what Dominion is arguing here is the reputational damage that people no longer trust uh, its voting machines, that election officials are starting to cancel their contracts with Dominion as a result of this. So when Dominion is asking for, you know, $1.6 billion in damages, I guess it just kind of raises the question of how you put a a dollar figure on that? Like, is there anything else that Dominion could glean if this ultimately is is ruled their way? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much they get from the case if, in fact, it goes um, it goes Dominion's way. It's anytime you have a, a case like this that uh, where so much um, money is uh, is at stake, where reputations are uh, arguably harmed. That's just a classic sort of defamation claim. That's the sort of defamation claim we've had from the very beginning of the United States. This idea when someone tells a falsehood or sometimes a truth about us that we can bring uh, a defamation claim because our reputations have been harmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so very classic, classic defamation case here. You know, back in February, uh, Professor, when all the texts emerged, Dominion uh, actually filed uh, a motion for summary judgment, asking the judge to grant victory to the company on its defamation claims without a trial based on the strength of the evidence. What does that tell you now that it is gone to trial, now it is going to trial, uh, about the way that evidence might be handled? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that what's going on here is that that the court is uh, aware of testimony that a reasonable juror could decide uh, both ways, uh, that a reasonable jury could uh, take the information and decide it in favor of one party or the other. Generally, on a motion for summary judgment, if it's clear, uh, that especially in a, uh, a case that, um, that isn't so First Amendment relevant like this mm-hmm. one is, uh, a judge would uh, then uh, decide the case uh, without sitting a jury because no reasonable jury could decide it any other way yeah. but that a certain party won. Yet here we are. Tucker Carlson said, Kaylee, in, in one of these texts about Sidney Powell, that she was a, quote, unguided missile and dangerous as hell. Mm. The filing uh, also includes that he said privately, quote, Sidney Powell is lying, unquote. 
about having evidence for election fraud. That's pretty cut and dry, Professor. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what uh, what's what the suggestion is on the other side. Again, we don't really know what that's going to look like. I look forward to seeing this as well. And and sometimes an important thing to mention here is that if a case continues and if it's clear to the judge who should win the case, that a reasonable jury, even after all this testimony, that a reasonable jury could decide it only one way, well, then the judge will take the case from the jury at that point and mm-hmm. decide the case um, uh, himself or herself. So so we'll have to keep an eye on that uh, as well. Unlikely, again, in a First Amendment case, simply because, in my experience, judges don't like to um, uh, don't like to become that uh, that uh, key a part of the ultimate decision. But we'll have to see what happens here. Well, I guess there's also a, a question of whether or not we ultimately do get to a decision because just because they haven't settled yet doesn't mean that in theory they can't do that at any point in this process, right, Amy? That That's exactly right. In fact, I remember one time uh, when I was um, a lawyer, I mean, uh, practicing law, and uh, the jury was out. And uh, even at that point, the plaintiffs were attempting to, to settle with us. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it can happen at, at any moment um, in uh, in a trial, certainly. And, and sometimes the pressure, of course, the pressure of the trial itself is enough to cause uh, the parties to, to settle. Just this recognition, sometimes how the jury appears, who the members of the jury are, that sort of situation can also lead to, to settlement, um, uh, you know, agreeing to settlement on, on a party that uh, from the party that's holding out. So, Amy, before you became professor of law at Tulane, you were a practicing lawyer and before that a journalist, I understand. Yeah, that's right. Which, so which care, is the I least what's less popular? My goodness, you've done <laughs> you've done them both. Which is a more hated profession, journalism or 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 the job of a lawyer? Well, I mean, your point is a you know, your point is a is a really important one, especially in uh, in a time when uh, journalism is uh, having great economic difficulty, uh, as you suggest, when the public doesn't trust journalism right. uh, and journalists uh, much anymore. Uh, again, it's it's deeply troubling to think about uh, the, the chilling effect that these sorts of defamation claims can ultimately have, no matter what side uh, you're on mm-hmm. here, um, certainly a decision uh, can have an effect on right? uh, on journalists um, in that way. So so troubling, troubling in that sense. Many thanks to you, Professor Amy Guida, professor of law at Tulane University. Seek and hide the tangled history of the right to privacy. This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY.
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Fun day to be chair of the SEC, and by that I mean it's not. Gary Gensler on Capitol Hill today testifying before a House committee that was split between Republicans and Democrats who have very different feelings, apparently, about (laughs) the way the SEC works and specifically about the way it's been handling crypto. Kaylee, this is your bailiwick as co-host of the Crypto Show here on Bloomberg. You actually were up there for this hearing, talked to a bunch of members. Mm -hmm. We keep hearing whack-a-mole as the way people describe his approach here to crypto and the incredible cost uh, that crypto firms have to swallow if they want to you know, come see us and register, as they as he likes to say. Well, yeah, there's a huge question of whether or not they actually can come register. Right. And you actually <laughs> had a letter from the Republicans on the House Financial Services Committee, led by Chairman Patrick McHenry to mm-hmm. Gensler, published today talking about how that is misleading because there is no process through which these companies have, can, register can come in and register. Right, exactly. So it's a question of uh, of the jockeying we're seeing back and forth between the SEC and largely uh, House Republicans. What I hear so often from the industry is this idea of regulating by enforcement, that there's not actually new rules being set out. You're just having targeted at uh, specific entities in the crypto space, a spate of uh, enforcement actions or Wells notices to say, you know, an enforcement action is coming. And that's generally how it's gone so far. You have to question, though, Joe, how much fault really does lie with Congress, because to this point, they have (laughs) not set any rules of the road as to what the SEC versus the CFTC should ultimately have jurisdiction over. So a couple of uh, points of interest here. Let's let's hear from the chair, Patrick McHenry, uh, who showed up with a real agenda, not a fan, clearly, of Gary Gensler, specifically when it comes to crypto. Under your leadership, the Securities Exchange Commission has brought nearly 50 separate enforcement actions against digital asset firms. And now your agency is requesting an additional $78 million to expand your enforcement agenda. At the same time, you've refused to provide clarity on whether digital assets offered as part of an investment contract are subject to securities laws, and more importantly, how these firms should comply with those laws. Now that, by the way, that was like, those were prepared remarks. They really got into it over a couple of things in terms of defining what crypto is, what the coins are. But you talked to a Democrat, Mm. uh, Richie Torres of New York, who also had questions about the way they're handling crypto, huh? Yeah, he did. He said he doesn't really have he has questions about how effective Chair Gunsler has actually been in regulating the space, pointing to FTX and how that was able to fall through the cracks and ultimately have this disastrous collapse of of a very large exchange 
the broader question, though, of what you alluded to with what Chairman McHenry was asking, he was asking Gary Gensler, is either a commodity or a security? Yeah, right. And Gensler was not answering. And so much of this, Joe, really does come down to these definitions because right. the securities and exchange commission has control over the securities, not over commodities. And until you kind of make that delineation, Gary Gensler's just trying to say everything's a security, essentially. Here's a taste. How would you categorize Ether then? Ether. I think that the general sweep of what Congress did, not just in the 30s, but uh, as amended. I'm asking you, sitting in your chair now to make an assessment under the laws as exist, is Ether a commodity or a security? Without speaking to anyone. I know you've okay. repeatedly said you're not going to speak to one, except you've spoken to one, go. Bitcoin. So I'm asking you to speak to a second one, the lar- second largest market cap here. And speaking to the tokens, there's 10 to 12,000. Oh, if there's a group of entrepreneurs in I'm the middle, asking about the one. public mm-hmm. is anticipating a profit based on the... I'm asking a specific question, Chair Gensler. I said this in private. This should be no shock to you. I'm asking this question. Is, it an e- is Ether a commodity or a security? Oh. And again, it depends on the facts <laughs> and the law. And if there's a group of individuals... I'm asking you about the, the facts middle. and the law sitting in this your This goes seat. on for minutes. I mean, I could just... this. He never... Basically, his answer was both. Yeah. Um, or not, neither. Or neither. Or not going to answer. This is why we wanted to talk to Tom Gorman, partner at Dorsey and Whitney, author of the blog SECactions.com and former practicing attorney at the SEC. Tom, would you have prepared Chairman Gensler in a different way here? Maybe show up with a, with a dictionary or at least an actual definition of what we're talking about? No, I th- thank you for having me, Joe and Kaylee. I appreciate it. Uh, I, don't, I don't think Gary needed a dictionary today. I think, the, <laughs> I think the definitions of what constitutes a commodity and what constitutes a security that are getting used in these cases are well-known to all the practitioners in the area. This is not a surprise. I have no sympathy for people who say, we don't know what the rules of the road are. That's simply not true. Okay, but we're talking about securities laws here, Tom, that were written in the 1930s. It's 2023, and these assets have only even existed for the last, you know, 13 to 15 years. So why are they applicable? Because they, they were written so that they would be flexible to cover a variety of different types of instruments. For example, if it's a security and you're going to sell it, generally, not always, but generally, you're going to have to go register it or have some sort of an exemption from registration. That's what these things are in many instances. Not the coin itself. People tend to confuse that. A security is what it, it what it becomes when it gets marketed and it's marketed to other people as opposed to just a coin. If you want if I want to sell you a coin, the coin mm-hmm. the coin is a commodity. But on the registration point, as you are a former practicing attorney with the SEC, that is the line we continually hear from Chairman Gensler, come in and register. Yet as House Republicans <clears throat> pointed out in a letter to him today, that process doesn't really exist as he says he does. It's a lot harder to actually do in practice. Does the SEC need to change something? I don't think they need to change anything. The registration process has been in place for years, and the rules that they're applying to these assets in particular, the crypto assets, were set forth by the Supreme Court in a decision that was handed down in 1946. Since that decision came down, dozens 
and, and a minimum, probably hundreds of lower courts have amplified on that and given it much more meat to the bone, so to speak. So it's not like these things were a big surprise. Uh, what, how that test works that came from the Supreme Court in 1946, every, every securities practitioner uh, in any place knows how that test works. You can look it up. It's a real simple three-part test. No big surprises here. These people, a lot of people who deal with crypto, not everybody, but a lot of people looking at crypto assets, try mm-hmm. to make up try to make up their own rules. We have a white paper. We have it attached to a blockchain. And it goes on with this sort of interesting sounding lingo. But the mm-hmm. interesting sounding lingo, smart contracts, what does that mean? It's just a standard form contract, but it sounds very cool. It doesn't take the place of telling the public when they're putting their money at risk here what to fully expect. And that's the Mm -hmm. point of the registration process. I'm glad you brought up the public and, and kind of what they do need to know, because outside of crypto, the chairman also faced a lot of questions around climate disclosures. On the one hand, you have some Democrats uh, saying that because climate is a risk that should be considered an investment, companies should be disclosing uh, this information. Then you have others like Representative Bill Hazinga who say that is totally out of the SEC's purview. purview. That is overreach. Do you have a thought on that? Yes. <clears throat> the I don't think that climate as a topic is completely out of the reach of the SEC. The purpose of the federal securities laws to tell investors what they need to know. So the classic mm-hmm. way this is, if you're the chairman of a company and you're sitting there saying, where am I taking my company for five years? That's what we want investors to know. And if that includes having to take into account the environment, because say, let's do something simple. Okay. But does, does scope three specifically take no. it too far? No. Not at all, because what the, what the proposals that are out there and they're still being worked on by the staff are just basically tell us what you do. Tell us what's going on. And then there's a second set that says, basically, if you do do like ESG, that sort of thing, tell us about it. We'd like to learn about it. That's what they're doing there. And that's fair. If the companies are, are taking this into consideration in a material way when they're valuing and spending your money that makes the company stock go up and down and makes the company products better, you as an investor should get to know that. That's what that's that's what the securities laws are about. Just quickly, though, if it applies to all public companies and their entire supply chain, doesn't this risk ultimately squeezing out small players at the end of that supply chain because it makes it harder for companies to disclose that particular information? No, there's nothing harder about disclosing the information. My, my Kool-Aid stand uh, example is really good. Mm. If you're a Kool-Aid stand, you want to know if it's going to rain tomorrow because you're probably not going to go out and sell. If right. it's not going to rain tomorrow and it's going to be hot and dry, you're going mm-hmm. to know, wow, I need more Kool-Aid because more people are going to come and buy this stuff from me. So <laughs> the weather, the environment makes a difference to businesses. All right. I'm officially thirsty, Joe. Tom Corman, partner at Dorsey and Whitney and former practicing attorney at the SEC. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. So much. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
Happy Tax Day. We've actually been looking forward to it, I guess, in a weird sense this time around because we're trying to figure out when the X date is. And, you know, you have to wait for the tax returns to figure out how much money you have and know when you're going to bump into the debt ceiling. The question of when the U.S. will default will come into focus this week. We need a couple of days here for the dust to settle. The guys, the green visors to do their math. The Treasury reveals exactly how big its tax haul is likely to be. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel talking about this season. A big one, he says, in 2023. I'm pleased to report that the IRS delivered a solid 2023 filing season by any measure. So far, the IRS has delivered more than 69 million tax funds, tax refunds worth almost $200 billion to taxpayers. All right, there we go. With Remember the backlog we talked about during that whole debate over the 87,000 IRS agents and the need for more funding for this decrepit agency? Again, we're... We are fully caught up. We have, we have zero backlog. Zero backlog. That's a headline. Now, hopefully I'm not the first to tell you that today is tax day. Time to pay up. And it's late this year. This is the 18th, of course, because, well, April 15th fell on the weekend. would typically push tax day to Monday, unless that's a federal holiday. And yesterday was Emancipation Day observed here in Washington, D.C. So they pushed it back another day, April 18th. That's now. So no excuses. Unless, of course, you have an excuse, you know, get an extension. In the meantime, though, the rest of us got to write a check, send it to Washington. Otherwise, they'll come and find you. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.